0: Vulnerability is that thing that we hate in ourselves but we love it in others. Mm-hmm. And so I try to remind myself that thing that I hate in myself that's mm-hmm. probably what other people find most endearing about me. So I'm just going to go with it.
1: Welcome to Slow Agency. This podcast offers a space for writing center and writing studies people to slow down, think, dialogue and reflect on issues affecting their professional lives. I'm Esther Nemaviro. I'm Wajali.
2: And I'm Anna Habib. We are honored to steward this podcast. To learn more about Slow Agency, visit Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders, a blog of WLN, a journal of writing center scholarship. Today we're speaking with Elizabeth Kleinfeld. Elizabeth is professor in the Department of English and director of the Writing Center at Metropolitan State University of Denver. She conducts research on academic rhetoric, composition pedagogy, and theory, digital rhetoric intellectual property, and multi-genre and multimodal composition. She has co-authored two textbooks, The Bedford Book of Genres, A Rhetoric, and The Bedford Book of Genres, A Rhetoric and Reader. Kleinfeld has also written numerous essays, peer-reviewed journal articles, and edited handbooks. Her most recent publication is in the new and very relevant and timely edited collection, The Things We Carry, Strategies for Recognizing and Negotiating Emotional Labor in Writing Program Administration. The collection is edited by Courtney Adams-Wooten, Jacob Babb, Christy Marie Costello, and Kate Navikos. Our conversation today will center on her piece, From Great to Good Enough, Recalibrating Expectations as WPA. Elizabeth, first of all, thank you so much for your courage, actually, to share your experiences with grief um, in this article. You're giving us all permission to be human (laughs) in the work that we do, you know, not to feel like we have to be sort of consumed by this culture of productivity and the demands that that places on our, our health, our mental health and our well-being. So thank you for that. So one of our questions that we really like to start with and ask our, um, our guests is about their background with writing and literacy. Any memories or any moments in your life that you feel sort of brought you to this moment, to the field of writing studies, um, to become a professor of writing and a writer yourself? Wow,
0: what... A rich question. Um, and it's funny, I ask my students to reflect on things that, like this all the time, but I'm not sure that I've ever reflected in a really meaningful way on how I would answer that
2: question. Yeah. Isn't that um, funny? We always do that with our students. <laughs> and then we're like, wait, how would I actually answer this? <laughs> right. Um, so from
0: a really early age, I was writing, you know, doing self sponsored writing. And um, I was described by parents and family members and teachers as a writer and from a really young age or at a really young age, I liked that label. And as I got older, I started rebel, started to rebel against it and feel like, um, no, you don't get to tell me who I am or how I identify. And so that by the time I got to college, um, I decided to major in, well, lots of different things, but eventually history. In part, I think as a rejection of the writer label, I was still minoring in English, though, because I did enjoy writing, um, but I didn't see it as a career path. And then I had some professors who um, really steered me more towards writing and encouraged me to get a master's degree. And it was when I was getting a master's degree in English that I started to really understand writing as um, a way of thinking I still don't identify as a writer, but I identify as a writing researcher and um, a writing teacher and are obviously a writing center director. And it's um because i'm I'm really interested in that idea of of how writing helps us think.
2: I think I read in your bio that your first writing center experience was at a community college. How did you get into Writing center administration?
0: <laughs> I was an adjunct instructor at a community college. And they said that they were, they could give me additional hours if I would be willing to direct the writing center. And I honestly, I didn't really know what a writing center was, but I sure wanted additional hours. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, with the magic of the internet, I can find out what a writing center is and become qualified pretty quickly. And um, I did exactly that. And then um, from the very first day, that I was actually in the position, I loved it. I was, um, it was a a very tiny writing center. And so being writing center director also meant being the entire staff. So I was tutoring the students who were coming. I was the writing center Uh um, and I just absolutely adored it. And there was one student in particular who I worked with regularly Who um, I'm no longer in touch with him, but I think of him almost every day. He he was just incredibly inspiring, and um, it's because of Jarell that that I probably continued in this line of work.
2: It's funny how many of us end up in writing centers just sort of randomly, (laughs) Um, as like a you know oh you know let me just do this as a grad you know TA, and then you end up directing a center a few years later or as an adjunct for additional, you know, tutoring hours or whatever. It's pretty right. common, I guess. And then you end up there and you're like, this is, I don't want to leave. This is like, this feels right. And it feels like home. Right.
0: Yeah. And for me, it was almost instantly like, wow, these are my people. These are things yeah. I've been looking for. <laughs> they get me.
2: <laughs> yeah. Within like the institutional structure, like being in that space always feels, I don't know, it just feels more human to me. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, thank you for asking such a great
0: question. <laughs>
3: Elizabeth, so before we move on to um, discussing your chapter from Great to Good Enough, Recalibrating Expectations as WPA, I was wondering if you could read us some excerpts.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to read those. It had been my most productive summer professionally. I had multiple research projects underway, had honed a daily writing practice, and was actively drafting and revising several articles, and had just accepted a position as associate editor of a journal. I was doing final revisions on sample chapters for a book an editor had shown interest in. In addition, with a new assistant director coming on, I had ambitious plans sketched out for the Writing Center. With the two sudden deaths, I got a crash course in setting boundaries, modeling self-care, and being vulnerable. But perhaps most significant, I came face-to-face with readjusting my expectations of what can get done in a semester, an academic year, and a career. Having spent much of my career haunted by the words of an early supervisor, you are much too emotional at work. I was proud of the somewhat stoic figure I had become. As I communicated with people that I would miss meetings, many of my emails relied on my busyness. Jennifer, I will miss our call this week. Unfortunately, a dear cousin died suddenly last week, and there are multiple memorial events this week that I am involved with. The busyness was not the real reason I couldn't attend meetings, however. The fact is I was nearly paralyzed with grief.
3: Thank you for reading both, Elizabeth. Um, I personally found these snapshots powerful because they really captured what you went through in vivid detail. Um, In the meantime, I'm also sensing the emotions and vulnerability that uh, underneath them.
0: This was a really tough chapter to write there was a call for proposals and I I proposed the chapter and then it was accepted and I was excited. But then when I started writing it, I kept thinking, why are you putting yourself through this? Because writing it um, really brought me very closely in touch again with those emotions. And I mean, I'm still not done processing. I'll never be done processing the grief I felt over losing these two individuals. And um, I think to some degree, I didn't have enough distance. I guess my therapist would say to me, Elizabeth, you don't have enough distance yet to be writing about this. But um, but I had a deadline, and I wanted the publication, and so I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out a way to power through it. Um, and so um, the writing was actually really helpful. I think, uh, like as I was reading those excerpts just now, um, I did feel that um, kind of tremor in my throat that that I that I get when I'm feeling emotional. Um, but it, it was okay. I mean, I guess the writing about it helped make it okay. Helped, helped me accept that. Yeah. I am always going to, to be, um, doing the grief work, um, that, that losing these two individuals, um, has, has made me have to do. And there, there will be more grief work. You know, I will, I have since then lost other people. We're all, um, suffering loss at this moment. And so, um, it's okay.
2: Um, I ask myself that question a lot about writing um, about grief or I'm writing about trauma. And um, I think that's why I've struggled so much actually um, to get this project completed is like how close it is and how difficult it is to write about. But then when I actually do write about it, it feels better later, but the process of it is a really difficult one. And I find myself getting stuck or paralyzed or making excuses. Like I'm just too busy. I I have to go um, do this meeting or this workshop. I'll write later. Um, I'm
0: very open with, with everyone about how much I love therapy. So I have a therapist and um, and, and, um, I have been working with her on grief and grieving um, for years. And one of the things that she has suggested to me is that I need to kind of schedule times to grieve, because what I tend to do is to just keep putting it off and being like, you know, those thoughts are intrusive. I've got stuff to do. I don't have time right now. I don't have energy right now. Go away, grief. And, um, And so she's encouraged me to actually schedule grieving on my calendar so that I can't Make excuses and say no. I don't have time right now because I'll have to look at my calendar and say, "Oh, look, it's time to grieve, time to process those thoughts." And so, the writing about grief was kind of a way that I was able to schedule it because I'm I'm still not comfortable putting grieving on my calendar, but I can put
2: write about grief
0: on my calendar.
2: Right. That's such a good point. I feel like that's true about everything and like life is going by so fast and so many things are bombarding us and I. I really appreciate that like that um advice and just I've been trying to even do that with just like stillness 30 minutes mm-hmm. a day like actually this is time for stillness like don't do anything don't schedule anything.
0: Yeah, and there's that neoliberal pressure to always be doing something that can be um shown quantitatively to have value and by value, of course, we mean a dollar value, right. and um, grieving doesn't have a dollar value, and and most of the emotional work that we do isn't going to have a dollar value. So it's if if we're um, you know submitting to the pressure of, of neoliberalism and feeling like we've always got to be crossing things off our to do list and and doing things that generate income um, for us or for the university or you know for for whatever else, um, then we're going to not process and and not give the the attention that we need to those emotions but as my therapist tells me that doesn't make them go
3: away (laughs) right (laughs) and i really like what you uh what you said about scheduling time to grieve um i think for me personally sometimes you know things happen so fast that i don't have the time to react so for me it's always like afterwards i realize oh that was it or oh okay now i understand what what i was going through what I was feeling at them at those moments. So my next question is kind of related to that. So how were you able to identify and understand what you were going through in and after those moments? Do you feel like there's like a difference? Or did those emotions get clearer for you afterwards? Yeah, so
0: I'm a person who feels things very dramatically and strongly. And I, I tend to um, just be overcome by waves of, of strong emotion. And so after each of these two deaths, my, my grief was really crippling. It was really, um, like that one excerpt that I read, I, I was paralyzed. I was unable to, um, to do anything, including thinking <laughs> for the most part.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so after I wrote just the act of writing and and having to think through, um, what am I going to say? What order am I going to say it? And which details am I going to include in what I'm writing? That all helped me make sense of it in a way that I just absolutely wasn't able to when I was really in the grips of, of the emotion. And so even though I felt the emotion while I was writing, it was um, there was some distance just because I was observing the emotion so that I could write about it rather than really um, being gripped by it.
1: Mm. I like what you just mentioned there, the ability to the ability that writing gives you to simply observe, kind of step back and just observe um, while also kind of drawing you to it. So you can experience that, that grief, but almost in a safe way, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's what scares people is it will be too overwhelming, but writing gives you a sense of control about it. Would you say?
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, Esther. Um, In fact, I'm, I'm right now um, I'm going through an, another kind of grieving process. My husband had a massive stroke in June mm-hmm. and um, his recovery is, is um, it's going well, but, but it's very, very slow. Um, and it's unclear when it will end. And so there's a lot of grieving for um, the person that, that he was who he, he just isn't that person anymore. And the life that we had, which was wonderful, Um, and it's not the life that we're ever going to have again. And, and one of the ways that I'm processing it is by writing about it. Um, and it, it does, um, help uh, allow me to observe my emotions in, in some ways that do feel safer and, and do feel, um, um, more comfortable, I guess.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry to hear about your husband. Thank you. It's, it's a, a tough road. On page 243 in your piece, you talk about how uh, Warden's theory of grief says that mourners will process pain and loss, make changes to their routines, accommodate what's missing, and learn to live in, in their new reality without denying the importance of what used to be. When I read that, that was very, that really resonated with me, with everything that we're dealing with right now. It reminded me of conversations I've heard where some folks have said, well, when things return to normal, this and this and this, and then others have said, well, this is our new normal. So for me, it's like we're trying to figure out whether to hope for what things used to be, but at the same time, we're trying to be realistic this is our new normal you know have you noticed this particularly in your work with 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 your students and with the uh, your tutors have you noticed um people trying to grapple with those two statements our new normal versus when things return to normal and
0: yeah yeah i've i've definitely seen this um and i think when people say they when things get back to normal, um, you know, that they're being nostalgic, I think, um, because the way things were before wasn't great, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, it's true. And, and so people are already speaking nostalgically about the way things were a year ago. And a year ago, things were pretty crappy for a lot of people. Um, we wouldn't have had all the Black Lives Matters protests and all of the, um, you know, the, the things that have happened since in the last year, if things were great. Um, and, 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 and so that's one thought that I have. Um, and then the idea that, um, we're, we're in a new normal or we're moving to a new normal, I think is kind of problematic because I think that idea of, of normal as a place that we get to is, um, is problematic because it, really denies that we play a role in constructing what is normal. We normalize things. And so like in my writing center work as a writing center director, I'm taking this opportunity to normalize mental health days, um, for the staff. And I'm recognizing that, that my that I have agency here, I I get to normalize this for my staff. And then when my staff ask for mental health days, my response to that helps to normalize mental health days. Or if I, if I respond badly, then I'm going to actually not normalize mental health days. Right. And so, um, so what I'm trying to do is to understand my, my agency here in, in the idea of creating normal. Um, And, um, and, and I'm also, thinking about and working with my staff um, in terms of actively creating a culture that that we want in the writing center. Um, And so so not trying to get things back to the way they were um, and not even really having a clear sense of what things are going to be. Because um, I think something else that, that I'm learning along with my staff is that we don't really know very much about what the future will hold, and so getting really attached to ideas of what the future will be um, it is really, I, I think, an an exercise in, in frustration and futility.
1: That's a very, a very helpful thought. It's a little uncomfortable, especially especially the agency bit. It's yeah. powerful, but it's but- also very somewhat intimidating. It's like, you mean I don't get to step back and just wait for things to return to normal? No, mm-hmm. um, there's no return in a sense because you're creating it.
0: Right. And, and um, a, another really important aspect of that is recognizing that um, some of us have a lot more um, agency than others. So for example, I have tenure and I'm a full professor. So I have a lot more um, I'm not sure if it's true to say that I have more agency, but I can do things with fewer repercussions in in um, when I'm trying to create a culture in the writing center. Whereas a peer consultant who is a student um, is going to have a different level of, of privilege and agency. Um, and um, an adjunct instructor in my department is going to have a different level. And so I feel like because I have so much job security and so much privilege in the workplace, I can take some risks that others may not be able to take. And, and I feel ethically compelled to take those risks because I can create, I, I can do more with fewer repercussions to create an environment that supports mental health days, for example, or supports um, working to, um, to, to, I'm trying to choose my verb here, <laughs> working to hopefully and the labor exploitation that occurs with with adjunct instructors. Um, And and so I think that recognizing our privilege and our subject positions and all of of those things is really important when we're thinking
2: about the agency as well.
1: Hmm. Anna, you had something you wanted to add there.
2: Well, I was just, you were talking about like this, it's it's an exercise in futility to, to just try to assume that there's going to be a normal, a return to normal. I'm just, I was just thinking it's just about so much about being comfortable with uncertainty um, and just how much our, um, you know, our culture has, has not created that, not, not normalized that uncertainty is part of life and that being comfortable in the present moment is like where you find security and comfort and not sort of um, I mean that's the whole mindfulness practice, right but um, mm-hmm. and that we all are so challenged by that uh, idea of uncertainty. Um, it makes us so uncomfortable. Yeah
0: and you know when we think about emotional labor, wow, what tremendous emotional labor it is just to to grapple with the uncertainty. And I think one of the reasons that, that we gravitate towards certainty is because there's less emotional labor involved in that. You know, if someone tells us, here's what the future will look like, we're relieved. Okay, cool. Even if I hate that idea of the future, at least I know what I'm
2: dealing with. Yeah. Right. And um, it, it's also about like vulnerability, I guess, like that the uncertainty means being willing to be vulnerable and I think part of it. And so there's just, you know, obviously a lot of resistance to vulnerability, which have you been, I'm sure you like, like Brené's Brown whole like vulnerability research and shame and all of that, but um, is coming to mind, but just how much good leadership, um, going back to the idea of agency. So much of it is about these things that we're talking about here. Um, yeah. about being comfortable with uncertainty, about being willing to be vulnerable. And I mean, that's a lot of what you're talking about in your in your. It heart.
0: absolutely is. Um, and in fact, um, m- my leadership team in the Writing Center is reading and discussing a Brene Brown book right now. Um, I think it's called Dare to Lead. I've got yeah. on my desk here somewhere. But um, it, vulnerability is... I almost want to say it's something I'm known for in the writing center. Um, it, I mean, it just is who, who I am. And so I, being vulnerable um, publicly is, is something that I've been doing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes I feel like, oh, gosh, I'm the most awkward person around because I'm so vulnerable all the time. And um, I remember something that Brene Brown said in one of her books about how vulnerability is that thing that we hate in ourselves, but we love it in others. Mm -hmm. And so I try to remind myself that thing that I hate in myself, that's Mm -hmm. probably what other people find most endearing about me. So I'm just going to go with it.
2: Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I admire, you know, I thank you. And I think that, you know, I do, I do find It's so inspiring to talk to somebody who is in a position that does have agency and, you know, in this position in in an institutional setting who is willing to take to be courageous enough to be vulnerable. I mean, I just feel like it's not something that we encounter um, often and uh, it feels so refreshing. So, yes, it is something that we see in ourselves and hate, but see in others and love, you know, and respect,
1: (laughs) really. (laughs) <laughs> you mentioned a little bit about emotional labor, and you described it in your in your article you, you uh, drew from Jackson, McKinney, and Caswell, um, who they, they call it many things. Um, they have a nice list there. Uh, they say it's putting on a friendly face, to delegating tasks, to making connections, to gaining trust, to creating a positive workplace to disciplining or redirecting employees it seems like emotional labor is all encompassing and some of the things it includes don't sound emotional um so i was i'm actually curious about why we characterize it as emotional for some of those tasks and how that makes it so different from from other tasks which Mm -hmm. might be your job description you're just going to you know facilitate workshops, delegate tasks.
0: That's a great question. I think of um, delegating tasks as one that is particularly emotional for me. Um, So uh, for example, I have, I'm the writing center director, and then there's an assistant writing center director. And there are times when I delegate tasks to him and I catch myself thinking, oh gosh, is this something that I should be doing? Is it, is it bad of me to be asking him to do it, um, particularly when I know it's going to be an unpleasant task. So like um there might be a a faculty member who's upset about something that happened in the writing center. Um and I think, oh, I'm I'm gonna ask the assistant director to deal with this. And then I'm I'm thinking, well, you know, should I really be putting that off on somebody else? Um, And so there's all this emotion that comes into play that that involves a a lot of it I, I think is gendered. So so I'm I'm feeling that sense of, well, if I'm the writing center director, shouldn't I be doing all of the tough stuff? Um, and then there's um, the shame of, oh, I'm not actually doing the tough stuff. What's wrong with me? Um, and, and there's um, guilt and there's all sorts of emotion wrapped up in just that simple act of deciding, should I ask the assistant director to do this? And so um, getting back to the vulnerability topic um. I have the type of work environment where I can say to my assistant director, okay, I'm feeling really weird and, and, and guilty about how I'm gonna ask you to talk to this professor who's upset. Um, do you feel like this is a, an appropriate thing for me to delegate to you? And he and I can have an open conversation about it. Um, and, and at some point in that conversation, he's probably gonna say, Elizabeth, you are putting way too much emotional labor into this. I'll just go talk to the professor. It's not that big of a deal. And um, I guess it's because of um, my embracing of vulnerability that we're able to have those conversations really regularly in my workplace. But, but to me, that's why delegating tasks is something that, that really has a lot of emotional labor attached to it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's very, very helpful. And I, I I would like to hear more about that particular part. You just said that some of it is gendered. Do you say more about
3: that?
0: So um, writing center directors tend to be female. And um, there's a lot of interesting work. Michelle Miley's done a lot of interesting work on mothering um, in particular. And so I'll just give a shout out to Michelle. But um, there are a lot of gendered expectations about what writing center directors should be doing. And a lot of it is expectations that we bring upon ourselves. Um, because we've internalized living in a patriarchal culture, we've internalized the idea that women are caretakers. Um, women shouldn't make other people feel bad. Um, women shouldn't, um, raise awkward issues in the workplace. Um, and so like with the idea of delegating tasks, if I'm, if I'm really, if I've really internalized the idea that, that I should be, um, um, kind of taking care of my staff, then I shouldn't be delegating tasks to them that are going to make them uncomfortable. Um, and um, if I if I or if I call out an employee in some way, let's say I have um, a, a staff member who's late all the time, and um, I I make them feel awkward and uncomfortable about being late. Um, well, I'm I'm now bumping up against gendered expectations of how women should be. I shouldn't make other people feel uncomfortable. Um, that, that's just, that's, I'm, I'm violating a, a norm of, of how women should be in the workplace. Um, that idea of smiling all the time, um, Esther, that was um, one of the, the things that, that you mentioned in the, in the list from um, the, um, Caswell and, and and Jackson and, and McKinney. Um, I, I forget exactly how they phrased it, but that idea that, that you should always be Happy and and um, welcoming and making everyone around you comfortable and just being a little marital. putting on a friendly face. Putting on a friendly face, right? So so friendliness is an expectation of women, um, and so when we do something that's perceived as not friendly or unfriendly, we're violating that gendered norm, um, and there's a lot of emotional labor wrapped up in that. Um, I I can. Think of many, many meetings where I have been perceived as unfriendly. In fact, um, recently um, I was told in a meeting that I was um, tasteless and unprofessional because um, I brought up something having to do with race, and and it made a lot of people uncomfortable. Whoa! Wow! Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so I, I was told yeah. that that was unprofessional. Um, and and I have a different read on it. My thinking was, oh, it's pretty unprofessional to allow this racism to happen in the workplace.
2: Wow. Yep. Well, there you go. I mean, that's what you we were saying before about how the normal that was before is um was is was racist. Um and mm-hmm. the systems that we function under are and and are and still are and have been for a long time. Um So like that just reveals that reality and people are uncomfortable with somebody saying, pointing it out.
0: Yeah, and there's emotional labor there. So, you know, I'm in a meeting, something happens that I think is racist and then I have this internal dialogue where like, oh, gosh, do I make everyone uncomfortable? Do I mention this? Am I the only one who sees it that way? Maybe I'm wrong. Um, maybe people won't like me. Maybe I'll lose credibility if I raise this issue. So there's all this emotional labor happening in my head, but I'm just sitting in the meeting looking placid, <laughs> right? Trying to keep a smile on my face because, well, I'm female and that's what's expected of
3: me.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh. My gosh. <laughs> That's <know>. heavy. That's <laughs> heavy. Mm.
3: Also, Elizabeth, what you just said about um, being nice as an expectation for women, it kind of reminded me of, of a comment that I got from um, a friend who was saying, "Oh, this professor who, who is a woman, who was being not polite in an email but then she was just speaking her words out loud. It was direct, but it wasn't like impolite. So I feel like sometimes we kind of project this, the, the expectations that um, the society or whatever put on ourselves, we kind of project that to others as well. And I think that's that's very sad. <sighs> mm-hmm.
0: Well, wei we absolutely do um and it, i i don't know if any of you are familiar with implicit bias work um but you know we've been raised in patriarchal culture so we've internalized these expectations just because we've been socialized to to believe them and so being a woman doesn't absolve you of of, of sexism or even misogyny i mean we have gendered expectations of ourselves and other women because we've been socialized to have those expectations and that's what seems normal to us. Um, And so you have to develop a kind of um, um, an ability to recognize it even when it's happening in yourself. And and I I do catch myself having different expectations of female consultants and male consultants sometimes. Um, And so part of being vulnerable I think is being able to Say to a consultant, you know, here here's a problem, and 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 they and and, uh, having creating an environment where they can say back to me, I don't know, Elizabeth, I wonder if you would hold a male consultant responsible for that the same way you're holding me responsible for it, Um, and then I have to be humble enough to say. Oh crap, I did it again. You're right. I'm so sorry. Let's revisit this. Let, let me recalibrate my expectations and, and uh start this conversation over again.
2: Mm-hmm. You mentioned in the article about documenting emotional labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, I guess the question is how do we document it in such a way that it's inclusive? So we're we're really showing or the the emotional labor that is in that leader the leadership position people are experiencing and then also the emotional labor that just goes into being a contingent member of an institution of a neoliberal institution
0: yeah so my feelings on this are evolving i, I think everybody's feelings are evolving um and so the answer that, that I give today is probably going to be different from the answer I might give in a few months or the answer I would have given a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm really interested in ways that um, directors and those of us with with um, privilege in, in academia can create. Um, in the past, I would have said safe spaces, but today I'm going to say brave spaces or braver spaces mm-hmm. for um, for for learning about the emotional labor that that other folks are doing, for example, I actually um, later today have a listening session scheduled with the writing center staff. And what I'm what mm-hmm. I'm inviting staff to do is to come and tell me what are the things that are happening in the writing center that I'm unaware of, or what are the things that are happening with them that I'm unaware of. And so the assumption is there are things happening that I don't know about, um, right? And, and so please come tell me about them. Um, and I anticipate that in that session. I will learn about emotional labor that that my staff is doing that I was unaware of. The idea of a braver space is that um, the stakes are different for different people in in this listening session, and so um, it, the onus is on me to create a, a sense of trust for 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 me. You know, if I react in the wrong way to something that somebody shares, everybody else in that space is going to realize, oh, this isn't really a place where I can share what's actually going on with me or what's actually going on in the writing center. So, so I as director need to do a lot of emotional labor to kind of um, monitor and, and understand the um, messages that, that my responses are implying as people are sharing things. And, and as people share things, I need to then think about how can I document this in meaningful ways? Um, how can I respond to it in meaningful ways? And how can I continue to encourage this type of sharing and communication and collaboration in meaningful ways? So one of the ways that I document this type of stuff is just documentation for myself. So it's it's not documentation that would become public, but it's me taking notes on what I learned and, and where I'm pleased or, or displeased with my own responses to it, how I think that I responded in ways that continue to create the culture that I want in the writing center and ways that I responded in ways that I think harm the culture that I want to see in the writing center. But then there's a level of documentation that that is more public. And that's like um, the type of documentation that goes to um, like our provost or um, my chair or um, even on our website. Um, so there are lots of different ways that I document this stuff, depending on who my audience is, you know, perhaps I'm a little more vulnerable in my documentation than other people might be. Um, But I do talk in like the Writing Center's annual report about things that I struggled with emotionally. So um, the trouble that I have with um, sometimes delegating unpleasant tasks to others, and the conversations that I end up having about it. Um, And that might not be things that are typically documented and and some people might consider it even to be unprofessional for me to mention it. But one of the things that I, I really resist is the idea that being professional means not being emotional. I think it's really problematic. And one of the things that makes us makes writing centers special is that we do invite emotion in, right? People are bringing in pieces of writing all the time that either the content that they're writing about is emotional for them or their process involves a lot of emotion. And so we invite emotion in. And so um, I, I think if we say emotion isn't a part of being a writing center professional, um, we're really putting ourselves into a bind.
2: Mm-hmm. I imagine that there are ways like if you're, you know, when you're writing that well for for one when you're writing an annual report for example and you do include maybe the internal struggle with delegating tasks for example first of all that's archived and contributes to like institutional memory and understanding of the culture of writing centers and the institutional constraints and pressures documenting that may not you know give an immediate Fix, but over time, it's contributing to that institutional memory that hopefully will, you know, reveal some of those constraints even more obviously. Yeah, and um,
0: I'm thinking too, like um, in the annual report that I write at the end of this year, I will be drawing on my personal Mm (laughs) documented, my personal notes um, when I when I uh, justify in my public documentation, some of the decisions that I made. So like, um, I have made a decision to give additional hours to some consultants, um, because they've lost other employment that they had during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's a decision that came out of some really emotionally charged conversations that I had in a listening session in the fall. And so I have notes from that, that, that I will use to to create my explanation for why I made this decision and the why I made this decision goes into the public documentation.
2: There's one more thing that you mentioned that uh, we just found really interesting. And it's the concept of slow agency um, from Michiki, uh, Mm -hmm. Laura Michiki's work. Could you tell us a little bit more about why it might be difficult to enact, but in a neoliberal context?
0: Yeah. So, um, a neoliberal context is, is is going to always be putting pressure on on us to do a lot of things and to do those things quickly.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the idea of slow agency pushes back on both of those assumptions. And so it's identifying, or the the way that I um, enact it is it's identifying some big picture goals. And stripping away all the busyness. Um, so, like, like um, one of the big picture goals that that I have for my writing center right now is to um, fairly methodically work toward anti-racist practice. Um, and one of the ways that, that I want to be methodical about it is to. Go through everything on our website, everything in our employee manual, um, everything in the textbooks that are assigned in the training classes, everything in all of our handouts, and and ask ourselves um, the Ibram X Kendi question about: Is this racist or is it anti-racist?
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so, it, it, a neoliberal mindset would say, "Okay, get it all done this semester." <laughs> see. yeah. Um, th- that's not going to happen, you know. Asking. Of everything in our in our writing center, is it racist or is it anti-racist? That's a question that that is a very deep question, and and I can't answer it alone because I'm a white woman, and so there are going to be things that are racist that that are are not apparently racist to me, and so um, to do this project well is going to take a lot of people, a lot of time, and. We could do it not well, you know, I could decide, well, we're just gonna um do it kind of in a, a mediocre way, just so that we can check it off um, but but i'm gonna I'm gonna be really um, mindful of slow agency and say, "No, this is really important. Um, we're gonna take some time to do it, and so we're gonna parse out parts of this project to focus on this semester and parts of the project to focus on next semester. And what that means is at the end of this year, when I write my my annual report, I'm not going to be able to say, yeah, we're anti-racist in everything we do. Instead, what I'm going to say is we are working towards it. Um, and here's what we did towards it this semester.
2: And also, you know, changing our, you know, website and manuals and everything that we're doing is more than just changing documents at a superficial level. This is like a much deeper orientation to everything. And so that is just going to take time. It's not this quick fix. I mean, that's the thing that's so the neoliberal university is so tied to is like, well, you know, change... (laughs) change this website and make it, you know, it'll look, you know, have different communities represented on the front page. Good. We're anti-racist. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, come on, you know, like let's not let's not fool ourselves here. It is system- systematic, thoughtful, reflective work and that takes right. time. Well, and
0: and the other thing, you know, since we're talking about anti-racist work as in this example, One thing I think it's important to acknowledge is that that work will never, ever, 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 ever be done. And so so that that sense of urgency is not going to go away. And, And so even if I got the website changed, the manual changed, the handouts changed, even if everything got changed this semester, there'd still be that much more work to be done next semester. This is work that will
1: never be done. When I read about slow agency and how you've described it here, a lot of work is happening behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But when things happen behind the scenes, it makes it seem like nothing is happening at all.
0: It's invisible.
1: And so I, I wonder, is there a way to make it visible and yet keep it in the realm of slow agency, thoughtful, reflective, um, but make it more visible in order to address that question of, this is urgent and nothing is happening. Something is happening. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that like you can't see it.
0: One of the things that I've done to make the anti-racist work that we're doing in my writing center visible is to just put something on the website that says, here's, um, we have a statement of anti-racist practice. And at the end of it, there's there's something that says, we invite um, your thoughts and criticism. It's small. Not a lot of people are going to see it. But it's there. and And some people do give us their thoughts and criticism, and we acknowledge it, and and we are accountable for it. And so that's a a tiny way to make it visible. Some of this work will always remain invisible to people who are not looking for it. Everything can't be visible all the time. And, you know, we're always going to have things that are foregrounded and backgrounded. Um, And we have to, the directors have to make choices about those things and we can second guess our choices and and second guessing is emotional labor again. (laughs) Um, and, And we can make different choices from semester to semester.
2: And I just firmly believe that the slow agency approach, I mean, that is what will bring change because it's reflection, it's thoughtfulness, it's caring, it's compassion that speedy approach, like we're never, as we were actually saying in the beginning, um, we never pause to have time to grieve or we never, like, it's sort of the same thing. It's like, if we're just going to be production oriented, then we're never really going to do the deep work that is required. And slow agency gives us that. Like that uh, framework gives us that permission in a way to do that. Um, So Anna, bringing that idea back to,
0: the conversation that we had about grief at the beginning, um, I, I found myself sometimes thinking it would be so much more efficient to just get my grieving done now <laughs> and then I can move on with my life. And at some point I realized you don't, you don't grieve outside of your life, right? So my idea that, that I want to get the grieving done so I can get on with my life. Mm. It, it's really nonsensical. Grieving is life. Right. And so or even you know, like this pandemic. People say, "I want the pandemic to be done so I can get back to my life." This is your life, you know. If if you're gonna think of um, the, the year, or however much time it ends up being that we're we're um, working remotely, or or um, having our lives disrupted by the pandemic, if we see it as a disruption, we're we're really denying it's not a disruption. It is life. <laughs> Right. Such a good point. It's a disruption to ideas that we had about life, but it's not a disruption to life. It actually is life.
2: Um, I do I do want to ask the self-care question just because I'm I'm actually very curious. Um a couple thoughts. One is like a couple questions. One is how do you practice your self-care um in given all of the demands? And then and all of the messiness of life. And then the second piece is like, what do you make of this whole like culture commodification around self-care?
0: There's um, this amazing Audra Lorde quote where she says that um, self-care is an act of political resistance. Yes. Um, and and I think that really gets at emotional labor because if we're practicing self-care in in the way that I think we should be, um, we are giving ourselves the energy that we need to um, to push back against <laughs> racism and patriarchy and ableism and all of that, and neoliberalism and all that. And so um, I, that kind of self care, the kind of self care that Audra Lorde is talking about, is not buying a, a nice new bubble right. bath or <laughs> a new candle or right. um, you know all, all of that commodified crap. Um, (laughs) It's really about um, getting enough sleep and setting boundaries and um, making choices that we can be accountable for about how we show up in the world. Um, And so in terms of my own self care, some aspects of it right now are pretty bad. I mean, I'm not getting very good sleep. Um, And and that um, is in part because As I said, my husband had this massive stroke and he has um, a lot of a a, a lot of complications that that I need to help him deal with. Um, And a lot of a lot of stuff happens at night when I would love to be sleeping. Um, But there are other aspects of my self-care, like uh, setting up boundaries Um, and like like I've I've been really clear with my boss. Um, I'm not going to meetings that I don't see um, as being really drawing on my area of expertise. So, so please don't even invite me to meetings where you just want me to be there just because it would be nice and convenient. Um, and she continues to invite me to those meetings and I just don't go to them. And, um, you know, there are people who who don't have tenure who may not be able to get away with that. I've got tenure. I can get away with it. Um, and so, uh, part of my self-care is, is, um, being really deliberate about where I put my energy right now. Um, and not apologizing when I don't go to a meeting that appears to be pointless. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, um, <laughs> the boundary piece is so important, and it's so tied to emotional
1: labor. And it is, yeah. Yeah. There is something, something you wrote in in your in your article. You said, "I try to I try to offer thanks instead of apologies when I pull out of a project or um, I am unprepared for a meeting." To me, mm-hmm. even that small element, that small change, instead of saying, "Oh, I'm so sorry, I can't do that," um, but to s- switch that and say, "Thanks for understanding that I won't be able to do that," or um that, yeah. thats a, a switch in in one's mindset. That it's it's it might actually be welcomed, but we don't think that it's welcomed that you would pull out of a project. So we expect you to apologize, which adds to that that um feeling of, of guilt and shame. But if you say instead, you know what, maybe it's not welcome to them, but it's certainly welcome to me, given everything else I'm dealing with. So I'm gonna say thanks to myself. If I have <laughs> to say thanks to someone, if I have to put an object to that thanks. But I I, I found that actually quite encouraging. Um and and Empowering, you could actually simply say thank you, as opposed to I'm sorry.
0: Well, and something else that I want to say about apologizing is that if I apologize for um, pulling out of a project, I'm normalizing the idea that I should be able to, Mm -hmm. you know, be on top of all these different projects and be dealing with the emotional labor of grieving or whatever it is. Um, and so every time we apologize for something, we're reinforcing the idea that we should be able to do that thing. Um, right. And I, so I have some colleagues who it seems like they begin every email with an apology that it took them so long to reply. And every time they do that, they're normalizing the idea that we should be <laughs> responding to emails immediately. Right. Mm-hmm. That's one of my pet peeves, actually. Um, I I don't apologize if it takes me a long time to get back to someone. And that doesn't mean that I'm a jerk about it. You know, I, I, I might say like, I appreciate you being so patient while I think through my response to this. Um, And so that's a way of acknowledging that. Yeah. I took a long time, but I'm, I'm not going to normalize the idea that I should be responding to emails really quickly. I got Mm -hmm. other stuff going on right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: That's good. So good. Maybe that's also something we can, Share with our tutors as well. I feel like that's an easier, that could be an easier thing for one to take to take up as a practice. Um, In our different roles, we aren't able to say no to attending a meeting, but we can certainly use that as a practice to begin pushing back a little bit and, you know, starting to care for ourselves a little more, or and even just lessening that emotional labor a little bit.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: So Elizabeth, we often um, like to end our conversations with a couple of questions. One is, what is something you're like reading, watching, listening to these days, if you are, um, that is kind of giving you joy or inspiration? So what I'm reading right now is Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> and nice. <laughs> I am, I am trying to do more nothing in 2021. Yes. You <laughs> <think we> define <laughs> nothing as things that have value, but not in that commodified way so um like she identifies um a a public garden in san francisco as having quote no value because if it were to be um demolished and condos put up on it then it would have value but as just a garden that people can go to for free people see it as having a a value of nothing Mm -hmm. Um, so so i think that
2: actually aligns really nicely with the conversation that
0: we've been having (laughs)
2: and then the second question is like what's a line of inquiry or a elusive possibly question that you're you're thinking about related to your research
0: so i've been really playing with this idea lately i used to always think about how oh gosh it's hard to even put it into words still thinking about how how um, our work lives, and our life lives, (laughs) non work lives. Mm -hmm. Like, like, I don't even have terminology for the non work life, right? Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about that, that, that even, even someone like me, who is really trying to actively push back against neoliberalism, I don't even have the vocabulary for talking about my non work life, because I'm so oriented toward work. And I find it tremendous amount of value in my work. And I think a lot of us in writing centers find so much value in what we do in, in our jobs. Mm -hmm. And yet they're still just jobs. Right. And so I don't, I don't yet know what, what the inquiry is, Mm -hmm. but I'm definitely moving towards something toward, toward, I I don't know, maybe an idea that, um, that instead of our, our, our life being something that like like the energy in our life being something that we can bring to our job. It's flipping it around. How can our job be something that brings energy to our life?
2: Mm, foregrounding our life <laughs> yes. rather than our job. Yes. Such a challenge. Something I struggle with every day, but I feel like that's the value of our human existence is we have to live our lives, mm-hmm. but our jobs take up so much of our mental emotional space right And then what's left is like 6 p.m dinner with the family you know
1: it's like, but I I do want to ask I know we're we're, we're wrapping a, we're wrapping up here but that that question about work versus life I'm noticing that we're kind of putting them as two separate things and trying to put them together by saying work lives versus non-work lives and I've been grappling with that isn't it all life? Yeah, it- it's not that work and then life. It's life, and right. there's if you think of it as a pie chart, part of that pie is work, mm-hmm. and then there's family, and then there is you know physical health, and then there is mental health, and then there is you know all these other things. So where where are we getting that feeling that it's actually separate work and life, and that one needs to be foregrounded? And isn't it all life?
3: For Esther, it's like we we try to have a clear cut of each pieces, but then it's all like meshed together.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and so that makes me wonder, uh, Elizabeth, are you saying that maybe writing center folks, when you say that they need to, that you're wondering about that question of where it's a job, it, where we can remind them that it's a job? I, I ask myself, I ask you, do you think that question is because we care too much about the work element of our life? I don't
0: know, um, but but I've been troubled recently um, by a couple conversations I've had where I found out that some of my peer consultants are doing writing center work that they're not putting on their timesheet, mm. and 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 it's because they say, "Well, I love what I'm doing." And so it doesn't feel right to be paid for it. Mm. And and that these are people who are struggling to pay their rent. Mm. And so there, you know, there can be a time when our passion for what we do is detrimental to us. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I don't, I don't have an answer. I think that's a wonderful question, Esther, and I don't have an answer and and I don't know if I ever will. Um, so, so it's a, it's an open, ongoing inquiry for
2: me. Yeah. Do you know about the NAP ministry? It's like a. It's a. I don't know. It's like an organization. I follow them on social media, but basically, they're advocating for. I mean, resistance to neoliberal culture and ways of life. And they're using nap as like the example, like you need to take a nap every day to pause from this whole thing. But it's very interesting actually how they frame it. It's very much rooted in the Audrey Lord quote. And I just feel like um, if we carve out spaces in our work-life part of our day that is bringing our life back into, <laughs> our non-work life back into the space, that's something I've been trying to work on. Like, let me stop here and go for a walk. Let mm-hmm. me stop here and take a nap. Like, because those are human things to do. <laughs> let me stop being a robot for, you know, nine hours or whatever. Right. Well, yeah. so.
0: I know we're running out of time, but the nap thing, I hear people say, well, taking a nap is good because you'll come back from the nap refreshed and then you'll be more productive at work. And that's the thing I want to flip. I want us to be, right. um, you know, happy at work so that when we take a nap, it is just the most delicious luxurious. nap ever.
3: Yeah.
2: Like it feels wonderful. You can relish. <laughs> but check out the nap ministry. That's their whole thing too. <laughs> I will. I will. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Well, all we right. just want to thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. Today was such a wonderful gift from you. Thank you.
0: Yes. It, it was my pleasure. I, I I really enjoyed talking with all of you. And I'm so glad to meet you all. And, and um, our paths will cross again, I'm certain.
1: That's it for today's episode. Thanks to our guest for the insightful discussion.
3: We would also like to thank our listeners and blog subscribers for supporting us. And a special thanks to Emmanuel Mubiru. We'll provide our theme song.
2: For notes and resources mentioned today, visit the Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders blog at wlnjournal.org forward slash blog.